Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. I'm very excited to bring you a very interesting, wise and wonderful guest today. So today's guest is Viv Groskop. She is a writer, critic, broadcaster, stand-up comedian and she hosts lots of amazing live events. She is someone who I really kind of look up to in the industry without sounding too cringe because she's someone that does lots and lots of different things and so do I and it's nice to have someone to sort of look at and think oh she's making it work. So a bit about Viv, so her brand new 2017 show, stand-up show, was called Anchor Woman and it was performed this year at Edinburgh Fringe and it was featured on the BBC Two and BBC Four radio programmes. And in this episode, we talk about Viv's new book, which is out now with Penguin. And it's called The Anna Karenina Fix, Life Lessons from Russian Literature. And we talk lots about that book on the podcast and sort of the life lessons from the book. Um, talking of life lessons, Viv is also a columnist and agony aunt for The Pool, which is called Dear Viv. She reviews TV for The Guardian and she's also the author of Stand Up Meets Midlife Crisis Memoir, I Laughed, I Cried, which is about how she did 100 gigs, comedy gigs in a year. And I really enjoyed recording this episode of Viv. We talk about not rushing creative projects, how her new book has actually kind of been in the works for around 15 years. Um, where she gets her ideas from, how lots and lots of things about hu- the human experience kind of isn't necessarily new and she draws on that from the book she's just written and how to have lots of projects on the go all at once and much, much more. So I hope you enjoy this episode and here it is. Hello Viv Groskrop. Hello, Amagana. This is a long-awaited um, thing that we were trying to get in for ages. Yeah, I'm really, really glad to be here. I feel like you are someone who I really gel with in the sense of um, I really admire everything that you do, and also oh, how Emma. you're, but how you're like you're like me in the sense that you do lots of things, but it's all really cohesive and it all makes sense together. Oh, I'm so glad someone else thinks that. Uh, I don't think that. Or maybe I'm. Really- I'm projecting that because I'm like trying to make sense of what I'm doing yeah well I only really through you discovered this expression multi-hyphenate oh yeah which I think if I was a bit younger I might be more comfortable with I'm trying to own um, it and be yeah, like that's my niche in a weird way it's, I think it's in America it's fairly comfortable thing to yeah. say right I just think of when people used to say AMW actress model whatever yeah and I think oh no I don't want to be that but I am sort of yeah writer comedian whatever and loads of other things as well um, I'm just a freelancer, you know, and yeah. I do what interests me. And that's that's uh, like the spice of life, fingers and pies. Yeah, for me it is. I'm really glad that I got out of a job, you know. I haven't had a job for 17 years now. And I went freelance for six months uh, in sort of 2000, 2001. Mm. And... That was an experiment that Mm. just went on and on and on. And I realised that it was just toxic for me to work in an office. I can't work in an office. And I'm not, I think I'm quite entrepreneurial, but I'm not the sort of person who would set up a company. And at the time when I first became freelance, which is obviously nearly 20 years ago, probably Mm. before you were born, Emma, (laughs) um, there was not really very much internet. There wasn't very much blogging. And there was not this sense of discovery and creating things for yourself that has come up in the last 10 years Mm. so I feel like freelancing has changed a lot uh, since I've done it Mm. over the last 20 years especially in the last five to ten years and especially since the recession in 2009 when pretty much freelance journalism collapsed which is what I used to make all of my living from and now I just feel really inspired by everything that's going on and by what a lot of younger people are doing because they're just creating their own media and all the things that I was employed to do when I was in my early 20s. People are just employing themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, it's the Seth Godin oh, thing, yeah. as we know, of like, choose yourself. Yes. Well, don't wait to be picked. Choose yourself. Do you almost feel a little bit like like a validation on a bigger scale of like you made the right choice because it is, I think, personally, the best. I think that's the way the world is going. Yeah, for me, it's not exactly a choice. It's more what I need to do. I I would never, I'm not suited to working in an office. I'm very poor at taking um, directions from other people. Um, anyone who wants to work with me, I'm really nice though. <laughs> I'm not really. Uh, I'm I'm just not very good at working in a team and I like doing my own thing. So I feel like it's the only thing I can do. Is the central theme this experimental 
that you do treat things as an experiment. I read your book, um, I Laughed, I Cried. I can't remember when that came out now, but quite, quite yeah, recently. Yeah, that came out in 2013. Right. So I did and this. And that was an experiment. Yeah, that was an experiment. Well, I started doing comedy uh, around 2009, 2010. And then in 2011, I did. I thought, right, I've got to decide whether comedy is something I'm going to do for real or it's just a hobby or it's just like a sort of like Pilates or something for me. <laughs> um, and I needed to do this 100 gigs because everyone kept saying, if you haven't done 100 gigs and you don't even know if you're any good or not, because mm. early, when you do it very early on, you can have fluke, massive success. Like you could do a five minutes that is makes you feel like you're Jerry Seinfeld. And then... You see someone else who's also quite new and you realise, oh, they're just laughing at them. Uh, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. There's a hysteria to those kind of early gigs that can be very um, illusory. So you need to do a lot of gigs to know and also to learn to survive bad gigs. So I needed to get to this 100 gigs, so I decided I would do it in 100 consecutive days and keep a diary of it. And that turned into a book. So, yeah, I love experimenting with things. I love new things. I mean, that's the great thing about being freelance and about writing and comedy mm. is that you're always chasing the new thing. Do you get bored easily? Because I, I do. And, I do. and I'm trying to not think of that as a negative anymore. Like, maybe it's a good thing that I want to go on to the next thing quite quickly. Yeah, I'm quite a butterfly mind, I think, is probably what people used to call it, <laughs> that I like settling on loads of different things. Yeah. But I also have sort of long-term threads running through what I do. So even before I did comedy, I was always really into languages from when I was a child. And I realised that that's because I love communicating with people and trying to make them laugh when I don't really know what I want to say. Mm -hmm. I was doing that from a really early age in, in, when I was learning other languages. And I now have that experience when I'm up on stage doing comedy. So there's always, I think, a continuity to what you do. And that's what's great about, about being freelancers, that you can always bring in mm. aspects of what your interests are into whatever you do. I also love that you are in no way pigeonholed. That's my I thing. I like you sound like a careers teacher. No, no, not, not at all. I think it's just interesting that um, for me, like I have, I've written a book, but now I feel like I have to do something similar or like along the same theme or stick to my thing that I've now carved out. And I feel like that's the whole point. That's not the point of me wanting to do this job. Like I want to do loads of different things. And your next book, well, it couldn't be more different. Yeah, that's right. So this new book I have out now, it's called The Anna Karenina Fix, Life Lessons from Russian Literature. And yeah, you're right. I could have written another book about doing comedy experiments. And I was approached to do various books about, you know, some, I mean, some people thought after I'd done a book about trying out comedy, the next thing I would do would be a book about trying out cordon bleu cookery or mm. and I was like no 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 that's not the point I love comedy I want to be a comedian that's why I'm doing this <laughs> um so I spent a long time thinking about what I wanted to write next and this had been a project that I'd had on the back burner for about 15 years mm. really um because I studied Russian at mm. university because of my name Groskop I grew up believing that I was Russian partly because my family were they weren't secretive about where our name was from, but they were just really indifferent. And I always knew that there was something unusual about mm. where we were from. So I settled on this idea that we were Russian. I became a bit obsessed with it. And so I went to study Russian at university, went to live in Russia. I worked for Russian Vogue for 10 years um, as a contributing editor. Well, and I really went for it. <laughs> yeah, I, when I do things, I get obsessed with them. And Russian is something that most people who study it, they do get obsessed. You kind of I get, get like that, but with people. Right. Like, oh, I'm like, scary. I'm, oh, no. <laughs> I know. Okay. God, that sounds really scary. <laughs> I just mean, like, I have a role model really, like, go there with, like, watch everything on YouTube. Anyway, carry yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm exactly the same. If I read a book, and then I have to read everything that person's ever written. And yeah. then I move on, and I'm like, I've... I've literally all resources have been covered yeah I've done that personally yeah <laughs> yeah so I was very much like that with Russian and I got this idea in my mind when I was in my 20s um, and I first had a, a literary agent who was saying you know what what book would you like to write and I wanted to write a book about uh, Bulgakov's Master and Margarita which is this extraordinary novel it's one of the chapters in my book 
Uh, it's a satire of Stalinist Moscow in the 1930s that was suppressed uh, during his lifetime. He wrote it in secret. He died in the late 1930s. And it wasn't published until the 1980s. And it became this book that was a byword for dissidents and change and being a rebel and a maverick. And it's a really extraordinary story. And I wanted to write a book about the story behind that book and the relationship that he had with his third wife, who Margarita is based on in this in this novel. Right. And people are always saying to me, um, they was going to want to read that book. And so I kept thinking, OK, I need to find a way of getting people interested in this amazing literature that nobody seems to know very much about over here, because mm -hmm. that's the most popular book in Russia, I would say, of the last sort of 50, 60 years, Master and Margarita, right. and it means everything to, to Russians. And I really wanted to find a way to popularise it. And so then I thought up this book about what books mean to us, because that book means so much to Russians, and how they change us as readers, and how we can chart our lives through what we read and the writers that we love. Mm. And the stories that we identify with, the characters that we identify with. So this idea of the Anna Karenina fix, it's a fix like a, like you say, when you're going after all of these people that you mm. love online and you can't get enough. Mm. It's that kind of fix. Oh, but it's yes. also the idea of fixing you as a person. Because I believe there are so many great lessons in this Russian literature, mm. even if a lot of them are on the surface extremely depressing, mm. which they really are. Um, you know. I love it. You're like the gateway drug. You're like taking all of this really sort of complex, intelligent stuff and sort of putting it into like more of a digestible book. Yeah, exactly. So it has 11 uh, chapters about 11 different classics, where, mm. which all have a life lesson to them. And there's a thread running through it of my life as a Russia addict mm -hmm. and how I uh, discovered all of these books and how I found myself in these books and then realised that actually I'm not Russian at all. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <gasps> spoiler um, alert. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. So when I was in my early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, we were contacted by a relative we didn't know about and in Canada uh, he's called Bob Grosskop, which I always think is a really <laughs> You're amazing You're like, mm, the sign's in the Bob. <laughs> yeah, Bob Grosskop. And he traced all of our family tree and we're Polish oh, and we're Jewish. Right. And, and did you go and then learn Polish? I wish, no. I've, I've spent too long learning the wrong language <laughs> to learn another one now. So I had been living in the wrong country and learning the wrong language and sleeping with the enemy <laughs> for quite a long time and that was fascinating because I realized that what these books represented for me was a dream of being somebody maybe more exotic than I really was or mm. trying to take control of my own identity and all the time I'd been living in London since my early 20s and I had loads of friends who are Jewish who just assumed that I was Jewish because of my name but we it was never sort of spoken um, and then, uh, you know, I've then did you have to like kind of shed this identity that you'd sort of had or actually speaking Russian and living there and stuff that is part of you? Well, this is the conclusion now. that I come to in the book, really, that there are the things that we are, which are rooted in our our identity and our past. So, you know, where our family come from, where we where we grew up, our names. And then there are the things that are our our experience or our lived experience mm. as people say nowadays which I think mm. is a ridiculous expression it's just experience or life <laughs> um yeah the things that we've been through and the things that we've read and I guess I'm arguing in a way that those things are as important as our roots mm. and where we're from and where we were born the things that happen after that that you chose you know I, cho I really chose Russia mm. And I chose to discover all those writers and they're a huge part of me and I have loads of Russian friends and that's yeah. as much a part of me as the yeah. fact that I'm not really Russian, I'm actually Polish and a bit Jewish. That is such a commitment to learn a language like Russian especially. Did you just... like? And I guess like I can't help but make the link between that like, you wanted to do 100 gigs and you did 100 gigs. You must have some motivation inside you to carry on things you want to do. Yeah, I have a, you know, a kamikaze obsessive gene in me that when I get into something, I get really into it. Mm. I suppose I've had to re I've had to reel that in a bit since I've had children. You know, when you don't have, I've got three children who are 
seven, eleven, and fourteen. And before you have children, so that was when I first started learning Russian. You can just obsess、mm-hmm. with, you know, over whatever you're obsessed with, and you have no one else to worry about. So I think having my children has made me less obsessive. But it does dispel that annoying myth. That if you are a multi-hyphenate creative person, that you're like a jack of all trades, bit wishy-washy, doing this, 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 and this. But you actually, like, you're very accomplished in all your different strands. Oh, I'm very no, accomplished. No, but you are like、yeah. you haven't just dipped in and then dipped back out. Like it's it's, it's commitment as well along the way. Yeah, well, I've gone into everything that I've done with the level of focus and obsession that that gives me pleasure、mm. and is fun for me. Because with Edinburgh, I just wanted to say,、mm. like, it is interesting hearing people come back from Edinburgh because obviously Edinburgh Fringe is like one of my favourite places to go. I go every single summer without fail, even though it's like cripplingly expensive now because everyone wants to go. But、um, it's almost like you you said that you were glad it was over in a way, but you still wouldn't do it if you didn't love it. Oh yeah. So is it like how does that work? Like it's not a chore, but it kind of Seems like it might be. It's a bit like you know when you go on holiday and you get, people come back from holiday and say, "Oh, I need another holiday to recover from my holiday." <laughs>、yeah. It doesn't mean that you hate going on holiday, right?、Yeah. Uh, Edinburgh is a very intense experience.、Um, the Fringe, I've done it three years running with a full for the full length, and I've also before then I did it. You know, two. I worked my way up. I did two days a week, ten days,、mm-hmm. and then I did three years, and I'll hopefully do it next year as well. And I do love it, but it's a very intense experience. It's it's really physically grueling because you have to do at least one show every day, which is an hour long,、mm. and you do it all on your own. So it's not like being in a lovely play with all nice other actors. I'm sure it's not like that for actors at all. But I just have raised tinted spectacles. <laughs> it's it's quite a lonely thing to do,、mm. and it's a self obsessed thing to do. You know, most people who do it, and I you know count myself among them, are massive narcissists, and you're. All obsessed about your performance and your show and who came and what they might say. All these things you're having to deal with all of that and get past all、mm. of that if you can because it's not healthy to obsess. I feel like the audiences、things. at Edinburgh are like quite. I don't think anyone's very judgmental there from what I experience. Like people are so happy to just go to so many shows that they're just so happy to be at another performance. And I think. Oh, can you bring those people to my show? But I, I do think like no one's there, like you know, with like their notepad. Like people are just a bit drunk and like want to have fun. Oh really?、Yeah. I need to go to the shows that you went to.、Um, yeah, definitely the audiences there are great, but I think as a performer you're always aware that yeah there is somebody there with a notepad, whether it's literal or metaphorical,、mm-hmm. and you're there to give the audience fun, but you are going to be judged. Mm. And you better be good. Do you like? Do you <laughs> like it? Do you like being? But do you like putting yourself out there? You must like. Oh、it. yeah, of course. Otherwise,、yeah. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't inflict myself upon people if I didn't love it and think、mm. that I'm giving something that other people can enjoy. Yeah. Well, I've seen your stand-up and it's hilarious. Although I was in the front row, it, we were at the.、Um, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't a gig. It was a sort of event. Thing that we were doing. Oh、um, yeah, that's right.、Oh, yeah. yeah, that was a bit weird, wasn't it? But it is funny because when I meet <gasps> comedians, I met like Joe Lycett recently. Oh yeah,、um, he came to my show. Oh my god, I expected him to walk in in a fur coat and kind of be on because I've only ever seen him on stage, and I've realised it's very unfair to expect comedians to be always on. Yeah, I think lots of、uh, you can't. I think you can't generalise about. Comedians, because a lot of them have a very similar stage persona to how they are in real life, and others are a completely different person on、mm. stage. And people talk about it in very different terms as well. Some people say that they only, you know, someone like、uh, Sophie Hagen, who's a brilliant、uh, new comedian, she says she only feels comfortable when she's talking into a microphone and under a spotlight、mm. in their whole life. That's the only time she feels comfortable. It's like when um. <laughs> I mean, this is not in any way similar, but Ed Sheeran on、um, Carpool Karaoke with the guitar, confident, like quite funny. Without the guitar, totally different person. Right. It's almost like it's strange how comfort and bravery and courage or whatever can be very, very personal to you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Like some people hate parties. Um, but could maybe do a talk to five thousand people on a stage. I think we have a lot of、um, assumptions 
um, and preconceptions about performance and about confidence. And I felt that I had all of those when I first started performing stand-up because I was really drawn to it. I was desperate to do it. I'd waited my whole life, really, until I was in my late 30s to allow myself to give it a go. And in the beginning, I believed what we all all of these truisms oh that must be terrifying oh it must be so awful oh what if they don't laugh what if this what if that and I realized once I've been doing it for probably a couple of years I don't personally actually care about those things and it doesn't bother me I'm interested in the process I'm interested in making it work I'm interested in learning how to be good Mm. and making it fun and making it funny that's what I care about I don't care about all of this oh what if this and what if that it's really interesting and Mm -hmm. I thought I wish that we didn't build up all of these myths yeah you know about what it's like to be in the spotlight or what it's like to be the sort of person who hates a party or loves a party or hates speaking there are so many myths around all of this and I wish people would be more open about just discovering it for yourself yeah because that because otherwise um people are going to be put off without even trying exactly exactly yeah because back to the book quickly with the the life lessons you're also an agony aunt for the pool and you have been for a long long time and you said i think somewhere or even just to me that the same problems always kind of come back round. oh that's right like yeah we're quite that actually humans are quite boring like we literally like that kind of thing like our fears and our worries and like it's all kind of samey Do you think that there's a link between the fact that you're taking life lessons from like, well, a long, long time ago and Mm. also the fact that in modern day you're getting the same repetitive... Yeah, well, I I think um, being able to write this book came at the right moment in the end, although I'd been trying to write it for such a long time. And it coincided with this period of me starting to be an agony aunt and do this podcast and respond to other people's questions. And then going back through all of these Russian novels that I love and trying to pick out the life lessons and looking at the author's lives as well, which often contradict the advice that they give in their books. Mm-hmm. You know, in their books, they're always trying, you know, Tolstoy is trying to say, um, you know, be calm, love yourself. And in real life, he was hating himself mm-hmm. and being really ridiculously self-disciplined <laughs> and never eating any meat and never drinking any alcohol mm-hmm. and, you know, living this monk-like existence. But in his in Anna Karenina, he's more saying, you know, relax and be who you really are, be authentic, which is... There's loads yeah. of really Oprah kind of self-help messages in Tolstoy, which I found quite amusing. <laughs> um, but Who doesn't love a bit of that? Exactly, who doesn't? It's really interesting to see that that thing is as old as time you know there's a Tolstoy quote that says um if you want to change the world change yourself first Mm. and you know that's the sort of thing Oprah says isn't it yeah why don't we learn (laughs) we don't learn well this is what I think is so fascinating and this is what also comes up in the questions that I get for the pool is that many of the questions that we have are tinged with frustration of I should be able to do this or I shouldn't be asking you this human nature is really hard to understand and life is difficult and we have to repeat our mistakes many many times before we get it right and then you'll be cruising along and you'll get it wrong again because my you know we both have a mutual obsession with seth seth godin godin yes we don't know we don't care we don't care we love him the seth to us yeah but in the podcast episode that i did with him he said something which i was like oh my god writing that down about how asking for reassurance is actually really boring yeah because no one reassurance is so um it doesn't last it just like washes off in seconds you can say you'll be fine you'll be fine but you'll still have the same feelings so you should reassure yourself but that's i mean our agony aunt columns wouldn't exist if that if everyone could reassure themselves that's really interesting actually yeah i guess often i feel people are writing into me for reassurance and they want me to say everything's going to be fine And sometimes I will say openly, I know that you want me to say everything's going to be fine and it might not be. Mm. Oh, and Mm. they definitely don't want to hear that. So I know I'll say I know you don't want to hear this, but it's the truth. And it's really about living with uncertainty and finding the confidence to make a decision. You know, often I'll try and pick through the options that somebody has and say, look, these are your options I'm not going to be able to choose between them for you. You need to know yourself and know which is best. Um, often uh, people write, uh, women write in 
uh, because it's the pool and it's, you know, women aged probably between sort of 25 and 45. They're writing and asking me if they should have an abortion. Mm. Um, you don't know the whole Well, I would never story. advise anybody on that in any context. Um, and I just always give a response saying, you know you can make the right decision. Because mm. I know that there's an Agony Aunt column in America. I think there's some sort of like huge disclaimer somewhere on the website because it's like you don't want to be responsible for anyone really making a decision. You just want to sort of give them something that they can then either use or not use, but it's up to them. Yeah. yeah. You want to give the power back to them so that you're listening. I think often for Agony Aunt things the power is really in getting the problem down on paper and getting it out there and knowing that someone else is listening and that they care. Mm. And I feel that the most helpful thing is that they've written in in the first place. Yeah. You know, I hope my reply is, is helpful or comforting or useful or practical, whatever, but that's the least important thing. The most important thing is that they reached out in the first place and that's probably already helped them. Yeah. You know what it's like. You articulate a problem or a challenge and that's you're halfway on your way to solving it. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time, our biggest problems, and you know, there's, this always comes up in the Russian authors, actually, especially in their lives, especially Dostoevsky, who was completely mad, <laughs> but lovely. I love him, really. He's kind of an awful person. They can't articulate what's wrong. You know, they there are loads of diaries of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky where they're just absolutely racked with frustration at not being able to figure out why their own lives aren't great but yet they can make things great in a novel. Isn't it interesting that, like, they... they, These guys (laughs) didn't have what we have today. And yet, like, we're still not... People are still not happy with technology and with lives that actually, compared to our ancestors, are pretty easy. Yes. We're still looking for meaning. There are so many theories about this, aren't there? Especially the whole affluenza theory Mm. that you know, beyond a certain level of income and affluence, um, we don't get any happier. And yet we think that we do. So we constantly compare upwards and think, oh, if only I had more money or more Instagram likes, then my life would be great. And in fact, it probably is pretty great how it is. Yeah. But learning to appreciate that is really hard. Yeah. Um, but I think we can be nostalgic as well about how things were in the past, uh, and wrongly so. That um, In Tolstoy, for example, um, there's this fantastic book um, called um, Flight from Paradise by Pavel Basinski, this Russian biographer who wrote this amazing memoir of Tolstoy that was a huge bestseller in Russia. It's about the last three weeks of Tolstoy's life when he ran away. Well, he couldn't run away. He was extremely old, but he walked away very slowly from his family and he renounced everything, including his family and his wife and just sort of went off to die. And this book is, it's pretty bleak, very bleak about this incredible life and this person who'd had this incredible success. And he's just, he's tortured really. He can't stand any of it. And there's this one bit where Tolstoy goes on a train. He's just trying to get as far away as possible, um, in particular from his wife. And this poor woman, he copied out uh, War and Peace six times, and he's trying to get away from her. That's a whole other book to be written there. Uh, He goes on a train journey, and people are constantly asking him questions like, oh, Lev Nikolaevich, um, would you like to learn to fly? Would you fly? Because um, air travel had just been invented or they would have heard about it. And he would say, no, that is only for birds. And (laughs) asking him questions like, do you like cheese? And (laughs) who are your other favourite writers? I was thinking, oh, this is like Twitter. Oh, my God. You know, this is like a real life Twitter. Because he he had a very distinctive look because he he had a massive beard and he always wore a peasant's uh, smock. And although people wouldn't necessarily be literate, Uh, or read newspapers or anything like that, they knew what he was supposed to look like. So they would be like, oh, it's the great writer. He will have all the questions. Let's go and ask him about whether it's okay to fly in the sky. And I was thinking... So we had like real-life Twitter followers just coming up to him and annoying him. He was plagued by it, and he didn't know how to answer them, and he found it really annoying. And similarly... So he was overwhelmed... Exactly. In a different way. He had, Tolstoy had overwhelmed. <laughs> and when he was at home, before he uh, walked away very slowly from his life, he would receive 
hundreds and hundreds of letters and deliveries and people's manuscripts uh, in on his estate in the countryside in the middle of nowhere. This is in the late 19th century, uh, early 20th century. And he would just feel completely buried underneath all of this pressure of people wanting things from him. And uh, one of the examples in Pavel Basinski's book is that a woman sends him a noose, you know, a, mm. a rope, a length of rope in a box. Uh, and the suggestion is basically, you're rubbish, go and hang yourself. Oh, my God, so he was trolled. He was trolled. Yeah. <gasps> so we think all of these problems are recent, um, and they're not. Because getting letters in the post and getting admired or trolled aren't, is not true human connection, is it? Which is like the problem with being famous, I guess, is like, there's in Lady Gaga's documentary on Netflix. I love seen the way it? that we've gone from Tulsa to Lady Gaga. <laughs> this is great. Well, you know, one of the same. But um, she's saying that, like, when the day is over, when she's been prodded and poked and sign this and do that and makeup done and someone with a clipboard shouting at her, she goes home and she is alone and it's silent and she's like, says she's really lonely. Hmm. And so it's just like, it's very shallow, the world that um, that she lives in, I guess. Hmm. Which is, I don't know, I'm making a comparison to Tolstoy because he's got loads of people just like knocking down on his door and, and really he just want, probably just wants like someone to hold hands with on the sofa. Oh. <laughs> well, he didn't want to hold hands on the sofa with his wife very much, which is why he ran away. But yeah, that's interesting. But I think that what is interesting now is so many people feel as if they have that exposure uh, with I think social media has given everybody a flavour of that. Mm. And the idea of solitude can now seem quite threatening to people because they become dependent on the likes. And mm -hmm. I guess they learn to overlook some of the negative aspects of it because the positive aspects make them feel so good. Did the people um, um, who you've researched from the past, did they... Um the olden, suffer. The olden days people, as my children call them. <laughs> the olden days. That's so sweet. Um, did they suffer with comparison? Because they didn't see as much of each other, surely. Like, I even remember before I got a phone, when I was, like, 12 or 13, I didn't know what anyone else was doing, so I couldn't be jealous of them. I didn't know who was at the party. Yeah, I do think this is a huge issue with social media, and I love that more people are starting to talk about it now. It's, it's comparison is toxic, and it's well known from. You it's know, like look at all the things you weren't invited to. Morning. Yeah, it's horrible, but it is a manifestation of human nature, and it's prevalent in all of the Russian writers. You know, mm. Gogol, Dostoevsky, and Tolstoy all hated each other at different times because of their different levels of success at different times. Is it all uh, men in here? as well. It's all men except for one lady mm. who is Anna Akhmatova, who is oh. the great poet of the 20th century. Yeah, unfortunately, I would have loved to have said, oh, yeah, there are all these great Russian women writers from the 19th century that you've never heard of, but... Maybe they secretly wrote everything. Maybe they <laughs> secretly... Did. Maybe Tolstoy's novels are secretly by his wife. That's my mm. secret. Um, no, it's not really my theory, but I'd love <laughs> it if it were true. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, comparison is... It's there in everything when you read about people's lives. It's not an it's not a new thing mm. that's new on social media, but as you say, it's it's now very difficult to get away from it ever. Yeah, because I, I can imagine it was always there, like peeking over your neighbor's wall and being like, "What are they doing?" And are we, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians <laughs> or whatever? Um, but yeah, I just wonder where do we go from here. Um, what, what would they have done? Well, the Russians did not do anything good about this. Most of them um, killed themselves. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, they did. I'm sorry. They did. Um, the pro this is one of the problems with drawing life lessons from Russian literature. One of the, oh. <laughs> the main lesson is life will be very difficult and then you will die. Um, but what I hope is hopeful and optimistic about the stories that I'm telling and the lives that I'm showing is that our humanity is so common. You know, we have so much in common with people in the past. Everything that we're going through, someone's gone through it before and they've articulated it in a really beautiful way. Mm -hmm. They haven't necessarily known how to survive it for themselves. Um, but I think that can be really useful to see because you see in someone else's example of how they didn't figure something out, 
you feel frustrated on their behalf. So uh, there's a chapter about Gogol who wrote Dead Souls and he's really probably the best Russian satirist. You know, his writing is so, so funny. And he had a really tortured life. Uh, the latest theory is that that is because he was gay. And whether he was gay, but he couldn't tell anyone or he was gay, but he couldn't even admit it to himself. No one really knows. But mm. it's clear from his life story and his writing that he was miserable because he was unable to be his authentic self. Mm. And a lot of his writing is about authenticity and... Um, yeah, so that, and that's a really modern theme at the moment, isn't it? Like, be, your, be authentic. What is authentic? Yeah. But that's not new either. Yeah, so I do think it's helpful to look back at these lives, especially of people who created literature that was very lasting, and see how difficult it was for them to live... Uh, at a time that was less free in terms of morality mm. um, compared to now. And it just makes you feel a bit more grateful that, yeah. at least, you know, we have all of these pressures, but we are actually free to ignore them. Mm. We can be, we can really be ourselves. It's not, I don't think, as easy maybe for certain individuals who feel like society doesn't accept them still, but at least they can still find communities it's one positive thing about the internet. There are people out there who are exactly the same as you. Yeah, that's why I always was reading everything about Gogol and thinking, oh, little Gogol, if only you could go on some internet yes. forums now, you would find lots of friends. You'd find another, you'd find like your, your twin in another village. Yes. But talking of great literature and long lasting things, like you, you could have released this a long time ago. Is that the story? That this has been uh, yes, yes. in the making for a yes, while. So I think that's I, really important to talk about because I think some people, and I definitely thought this before I even kind of knew the publishing process, is like you just think, oh, yeah, just, you know, you write it, it comes out. It's like, no, <laughs> it takes a long time sometimes. Yeah, so I, I wanted to write this book for a long time and I had tr been trying to punt it as an idea for a long time and writing bits of it you know and squirreling them away pointlessly and writing generally if you write a non-fiction but you need to write a proposal you're probably not going to write the entire book which you would have to do if you wrote a novel now previously you could sell novels you know on something written on the back of a bus ticket really um, in the Those olden the days. days back in the olden days <laughs> now it's like just yeah. rustle up it, like a hundred thousand words yeah and, it used um, to we'll be see. i think up until about maybe five ten years ago it was maybe three chapters you could sell a novel on Ooh. um but now it's a whole novel or nothing it is a pretty good measure of your commitment <laughs> is can you actually write the novel for, first um but with non-fiction it's not quite like that so I tried to sell this proposal a lot of times in different guises, not in the in the guise that it's in now. Um, and then finally, a lot of things suddenly came together. So I did the War and Peace uh, blog that, uh, for The Guardian. I write for the TV reviews for The Guardian. And there was this production of War and Peace that was on BBC One and with Lily James in it that was very popular. And the blog had all of these incredible responses from people and I suddenly thought, oh, this is going to be the right moment for people to understand this take that mm -hmm. I have on Russianness and Russian literature and what it means now and how we can still be interested in it now. So that happened. And so you were waiting for the right time. Yeah, I was. And I also felt much more at peace with my whole identity quest that I'd been through of thinking I was Russian, finding out I wasn't and feeling stupid about it and thinking... I'm not really Russian anyway, so can I really write about this? And then realising, well, that is actually the story. That's mm. that's interesting. That's There's something there to explore. And to be a writer, you have to have things to write about. I always think sometimes, well, I've become really boring and I think that worries me a little bit because Why do you think what am I going to write about? Why do I don't do anything. I used to be really fun. And then I would have things to write about. Like this happened, I went out on this night, I met this person. And now I think I'm just... Are you just I'm talking just... about promiscuity, Emma? <laughs> Maybe. I just, I don't know. <laughs> I just feel like, where's my material? But this is what I mean. Like you've had, you have had and you still live like a very, like you have lots going on. So I can imagine like it's quite good to draw from those things and you have things to well, write I think about. I, well, I couldn't have done comedy... <laughs> 
uh, before I did, I, I wish I'd started doing it when I was 18. God, I wish that so much, but that's not how things turned out for me. And in the end, I find it much easier is not quite the right word, but more satisfying that I have a, a long life. I'm not, not, I know, I'm in my 40s and I have a lot of experience to draw on. Mm. And I talk about different things compared to someone who's 21, what they're going to talk about. I'm just as interested in what they have to say. And I've I've been there, so I'm amused. And I generally understand, although if they start talking too much about Tinder, then I don't understand. I, God forbid I ever have year. to go get divorced oh and go God. on Tinder. This will be so terrible. <laughs> I'm kind of fascinated by it, though. But I love the fact that I'm that bit older and I just don't really care as what other people think of me as much as I used to when I was younger and I can't wait for that moment I'm not there yet yeah so it's not so much that I have all these things that happen to me that I want to talk about it's more I'm looking at everything through the lens of experience and everyone has had a different experience you know and so everybody has a different take on things and that's what you try to bring out in your comedy Mm. everyone has interesting things to talk about it's like when you find Some yourself just talking to someone just in the queue in Sainsbury's and you're like, God, everyone has so such stuff going on. If you just peel back a layer, it's yeah, like, whoa. Everyone's got a ton of stuff Ev- going on. So much. So what are you looking forward to with this coming out and the rest of the year? Like, are you, are you, how are you promoting it? Well, I'm really excited because the book has been bought by Russia. Amazing. So that's going to be completely fascinating. Oh my God, are you going to go over there? And- I hope I'm going to go over there. And I'm fascinated to know why why they bought it in a way. Because I think this is such an interesting moment for a relationship between the West and Russia. Mm. And it's a bit like when I first started learning Russian 20 years ago, I would go to Russia and I'd meet people who had never met anyone from outside Russia. Mm. And they never imagined they would travel outside Russia. And that has changed very quickly. And I've got now friends who I knew from that time who live all over the world. Um, You know, I've got a friend, a Russian friend who lives in Goa, who sells jewellery on a website from Goa. And and 20 years ago, if I'd have said to her that that were possible, she would have said, no, 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 that's not possible. I might go on holiday to Lithuania sometime. But Mm. she wouldn't imagine that. So but now it's come full circle because Russia has become more closed again in a way um, under Putin. So I'm fascinated to see how this book will be received because it's an English person's appreciation of their culture. It's Mm. completely apolitical. So there's nothing in it about the current situation. Oh my God, what this is going to be like the new Hugger. (laughs) (laughs) Hugger for Russians. It's Hugger for Russians. Make the Russians feel good. Um, And so that's really exciting. And it's also sold to America. So that's uh, next autumn, I'll be going to the US to promote it over there. Do you still keep up your Russian? I do, no конечно, Emma, что как же как же можно без этого? Oh my god. You're how could I not? So fluent. How do how do you keep it up? I could have been saying anything then. I could I could <laughs> have been speaking in Polish. Like, I hate you. And I hate this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um I I don't keep it up as much as I ought to really. I did a masters, a masters degree about 10 years ago um, at CIS in London, the School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies, which is amazing. Um, and I have, you know, Russian friends and Georgian friends. Um, I have lots of Georgian friends because Georgian food is the best. Mm. Um, it's not a, it's a bit of a selfish reason <laughs> to be friends with people, but it's true. And yeah, I just try and keep on top of it, but I'm not as... Actually, the um, internet and social media is, is quite good. I started following lots of Russian people on Twitter and that helps you keep up oh, yeah. language skills. Yes. Yeah. So you'll be able to do all your book events in Russian. Uh, Yes, I will. I'm sure they'll laugh at my Russian. I always say my Russian must sound like the policeman in Hello, Hello. You know, (laughs) good morning. I was pissing by your house. It's, it's, you know, fluent, but I'm sure to Russians it sounds weird. There's a twang. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so exciting. Because, like, last time you were doing book events, I guess it's a very different book, your first book, because you're, like, on the cover and it's, like, it's, like, your story and... It's more about you, isn't it? This book will be more for people who love reading. And it's really an exploration of 
who are we as readers and what the books we read, how do they shape our lives? So it's much more of a conversation than is me talking about my experience, which is what I was doing in my previous book. Mm. So I'll be, I'm, I've already heard so many interesting things from people about their experiences of reading Russian literature and what these books mean to them and breaking through the intimidation that these books can have mm. for people because that was why I really wanted to write it was because I want to take all the snobbery out of oh I could never read War and Peace it's not for me yeah. that kind of idea it's it's not it's just you've just got to just read bits of it yeah I really like that because I do I feel sometimes especially at like literary festivals I do feel a little bit intimidated by like oh you're not a real author you're not oh, a real I hate that you so know I, I do unfortunately feel like that yeah it's so know. silly that we think that way I, I do think there is still that snobbery around proper literature yeah. or whatever that is I just did um the new tv version of front row on bbc2 and there we had a discussion about jk rowling and how people say oh well of course the books are actually no good they're not literary and that kind of thing just annoys annoys me so much it's like what people are reading yeah and let people enjoy what they enjoy Mm. everything has a a place yeah you know everything is to be discovered on its own merits i love reading well i hate the word the term chick lit but like you know just really fun and relaxing things like on holiday i don't want to read war and peace Depends I'm going to get you one piece for your next <laughs> holiday, definitely. <laughs> Be there with like five pairs of glasses I think, on. I think I don't see why you couldn't read. This is the thing is that people think, oh, you wouldn't read War and Peace as a beach read. I don't see why you wouldn't. It would be a very, you'd need to be on the beach for quite a long time. <laughs> but that would be a great holiday, six week beach read. I think I've been scarred by doing, having to read for university like Tristram Shandy right. was on my thing. Okay. I didn't want to, like, they killed it for me. Yeah. I now. Oh, you need to rediscover. I, yeah. Um, I, would, I would prescribe to you Chekhov because Chekhov is very simple, clear, concise writing, no big words. Uh, he's only written short, short stories and plays, so there's no doorstop novel mm-hmm. to worry about. The portraits that he paints, his psychological portraits, are extraordinary. Uh, Lady with Lapdog. It's okay. about seven pages. Go and read okay, that. It's absolutely that. brilliant. So you are and, the gateway and, drug and to this he world. Was, he was a doctor. He was a medical doctor. And he did that for almost all of his life until he got um, really bad tuberculosis and was just treating himself. I, I oh told you, though, it's all really miserable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he had a profound understanding of, of human life and of the human condition, and not through just, you know, sitting in his library and writing about it, but through actually treating people and living through their pain and understanding people's illnesses and their mm-hmm. psychology, and it's absolutely amazing. I'm going to read that. wanted to say as well, where do you get your ideas? I love, and, I and, love this question. But also, but do you think that you're going to... Run, do you ever worry you're going to run out of ideas? This is my favourite question because everyone com- everyone complains about this question because I, I used to be the artistic director at the Bath Literature Festival and I've done lots of hosting at mm. literature festivals and I'm doing... Is this like the where will you be in five years time well, question? This is the question that everyone says, oh, I can't believe someone's asked that question and lots of writers will say, I, I won't answer that question. Totally valid question, it's lovely but some people will sarcastically say, oh, I get them from the ideas shop. Um, what it means really is where do you get your inspiration from? What inspires you? Yeah. So I am inspired by newness and finding out new stuff just like you are. Mm. So it's about having a sense of curiosity and always being open to discovering new things. And I never feel I never feel like I know anything. You know, it's kind of hard to write this book because I thought... Oh, you know, I've studied Russian for 20... This is maybe a bit of a woman thing, actually. I've studied Russia for, Russian for 20 years. I've lived in Russia. I've worked for Russian Vogue mm-hmm. for 10 years. I speak Russian fluently. I have I have several degrees in Russian. <laughs> like, when am I, I going to think that I know everything? Never. Yeah. But is it, okay to share, is it okay to share what I know now? Yes. And that adds to the debate. And Interesting, because maybe if you were a man, you would have been like... I'm going to write. I know everything. Yeah, maybe. I do think women can sort of uh, always want to be overqualified Mm. in order to speak, and and you know, down with that. I say. Yeah. Um, Which I've that's an idea I've stolen from Tara Moore, uh, the author of Playing Big, who writes brilliant stuff about 
women finding excuses to what she calls hide you know, getting loads of qualifications and making sure that you've ticked every box and, you know, all of that. Because that's the interesting part, I think, of what I, tr- what I try and get at with the question is, like, it's it's less, like, where do you get your ideas from? More, when do you know when to act on them? This is something I always, I always think about um, Woody Allen when when people talk about this because he writes his ideas down on a little scrap of paper and puts it in a drawer next to his bed... I know Woody Allen's been completely discredited, so I shouldn't refer to him at all. But let's just pretend he hasn't for a moment. Um, uh, but he used to um, collect all of these ideas in a drawer and just keep them there, like for years and years and years sometimes. And then when he'd finished one project, he would get out this kind of mass of scrappy bits of paper and just go through them and see what still mm. held interest for him. Yeah. So I try and you know keep notes of things that I'm interested in and like I was playing around with the title for this book for probably two or three years before I actually sold it so Mm. I was thinking is it going to be like the Anna Karenina cure what am I trying to say with this book and and for me it was really important to get the title and then I know what it is and I can explain it to people because often unless you can explain to people in two sentences what your idea is you're not going to get enough people interested in it to make mm. it fly yeah and that's also, the hard thing the, ele- and also the elevator pitch thing yeah it's probably not ready so when it's ready enough in your mind to say yeah this is a, this is a book about russian literature that teaches you how to live a better life and has a subtext of how i messed up in my life and then made things better by reading these books mm. then that's it you know but it took me a long time to understand oh yeah that's what the idea is it's interesting that you it's like it takes some patience doesn't it to wait on an idea because I think maybe it's like the culture we live in at the moment of like now 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 get it out there get it out there maybe it's just a reminder that there isn't actually a rush on a project if it needs time but also in the meantime you can always you can do other things it's not like you're starved of always going to be creative and always feel slightly fulfilled in other ways you can kind of wait a little bit yeah and I think sometimes um this is what, um, what does Tara Moore call this? Oh, yeah, she calls this, uh, Tara Moore, it's M-O-H-R. Um, she's such a brilliant, brilliant thinker on all of this stuff. She calls it chrysalis time when you're um, incubating an idea and you mustn't rush it in the same way you wouldn't try and like rip a caterpillar out of a chrysalis. I, oh, I, oh, no, it's the, is it a butterfly? I don't know anything about um, even what the subject of studying butterflies <laughs> is um you wouldn't try and rush that process it's something that just has to mm. i was going to say fester marinade marinade yes yeah. and then at the right time it will be ready so don't yeah. rush it and again yeah i agree with you i think people are very um keen to move on to the next thing mm. and force Short themselves term goals to, kind yeah of. but those aren't really the things that you're going to measure your life in mm. Oh, well, that's a nice note to end on. Is there anything else you want to say before I do my little... Go read Chekhov. I'm going to read Chekhov. Thank you for letting me pick your brain. I hate that phrase. You know what I mean? Yeah. I always... I'm really, I really always, like, glad just to be picked. I always kind of want to go inside and ask you about your different things because it is interesting to me that you do do so many different things. Yeah, well, I think life is very varied... And you have to follow what you're interested in and just stay passionate about things and not question too much of, does it make sense? Well, does it make sense to you? Does it make you feel excited and it sounds like it's going to be fun? Well, definitely do it. I knew that this episode would turn into me just asking you agony aunt questions. (laughs) Well, that's fine. (laughs) Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you.